Hello everybody, my name is Justin Begley and you're listening to Magnify, a podcast dedicated to magnifying Jesus Christ in our daily lives. Today we're going to talk about truth and this is a topic that really never has been controversial up until the maybe the last century or so. And when you had this philosophical movement called postmodernism, which asserts that there actually doesn't exist truth. And so in society, as that has been kind of more widely accepted, truth has really been pushed out and abandoned under the guise of postmodernism. And so what the postmodernists did is they popularized the notion that all truth is actually relative, that there really isn't any objective truth. Now, when examining that, you can immediately call out the logical consistency in that and ask them, well, how do you know that to be true? Is, is that really true? Because they're making a truth claim of which they can't actually support by their own claim. Because if they say that the truth is that all truth is relative, then how do they know that that is actually the objective truth? So it's logically inconsistent and the argument kind of falls on its face. But you see this pervasively uh, throughout culture. You see it on college campuses. You see it in the media. And so I want to look at um, what does a Christian worldview say about truth? And let's first, I want to point to a short passage in John 18 where Jesus is interacting with Pontius Pilate. He's being questioned by Pilate after he uh, leaves the the questioning that uh, went that he went under by the high priest Caiaphas at the Sanhedrin after he got arrested and was betrayed by Judas. And so, starting in verse thirty three, uh, it says Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, "Are you the King of the Jews?" Jesus asked, "Is that your idea, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew?" Pilate responded, "Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me." What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. And then Pilate left uh, before Jesus could respond. Now, this is such a peculiar question that Pilate asked Jesus. Pilate was asking truth itself, Jesus, the incarnate truth, what truth is. Had he actually cared about what truth actually was and stayed to hear an answer to his question, I imagine Jesus probably would have responded with something like this. I am. For the Christian, truth is not an idea, it's not, it's not some arbitrary concept, but truth is actually a person. That's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Christians have a very exclusive claim to truth because we have and we find truth in a person, not in some idea. And so, what are we seeing today? Well, I mentioned earlier that, you know, under the guise of postmodernism, Truth has really been abandoned. We're seeing a complete rejection of the truth. We're told that truth is relative. We're told about your truth and my truth rather than the truth. And this is, again, it's an idea of the postmodernist who has been skeptical, who is skeptical of the authoritative and ex- exclusive claims 
made by the Bible. And we also see this kind of bleeding in the culture. What started as kind of an academic, uh, elitist philosophy has actually fully bled into the culture now. And so you see this because of this rejection of truth. You see a lot of hostility towards Christianity. And you see this especially pervasive on places like college campuses where students are told to live your truth, to find true happiness and and, and, and they're given safe spaces when they are offended by actual truth. Like if they're confronted by the truth, maybe an exclusive truth claim of Christianity, that that experience can actually be traumatizing to them and the, and, and the college has to provide a safe space. That's what postmodernism has led to. And so given the hostility toward the truth, how can we as Christians lovingly respond? Now, there's an old saying that truth without love is mean and love without truth is ineffective. So we have to find a good balance between the two. And it helps to be prepared to analyze other worldviews because as Christians, we're going to be confronted with a lot of them, whether it be atheism or postmodernism or naturalism or Islam or Buddhism or any other existing worldview. We have to give an answer for the hope that we have and we have to give a reason for why we believe that Jesus Christ is in fact the truth. And this is exactly what the biblical mandate uh, is that, that Peter presents in, in 1 Peter 3.15, where he says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. First, let's, let's see how to kind of analyze other competing worldviews. So I'm, I'm actually a graduate of the RZIM Academy, which is an academy of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, which focuses on training in apologetics. And apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, uh, which is actually used in the verse that I just read, where it says, be prepared to give an answer or a reason for the hope that you have. That is what apologetics is. And so at the RZIM Academy, one of the primary tools to analyze a worldview is called the 345 grid. And I'm going to present this to you. It's not mine. I didn't come up with it. I'm not, I wish I was smart enough to come up with this, but um, this is what you learn if you go to the RZIM Academy and you, and you take an apologetics course. And so what the 345 grid does is so it starts off in kind of a sequential um, way to test truth. And so it starts out with two philosophical theories of truth. The first is correspondence theory, and the second is coherence theory. Correspondence theory says that facts must correspond with reality makes sense. Coherence theory says that when all these corresponding facts are put together, they must cohere a narrative. Now, these are two really strong analytical tools that must go together in analyzing a truth claim or a worldview. If a truth claim does not conform to these theories, it's not the truth. Okay, so keep that in mind. When you apply the Christian worldview to these two theories, I think you'll find that it fits these theories absolutely perfectly, that without contradiction, it fits correspondence theory and coherence theory. The next tool is these three tests for truth. The first is logical consistency is what you're arguing rational. Empirical adequacy, can we actually empirically, empirically test what you are arguing? And the third is experiential relevance. Does this actually apply to my daily life? Now, these tests are absolutely critical because it is obvious to see that if a worldview doesn't pass these tests, then it's absolutely meaningless. The Christian worldview plas pa passes these tests, however, with flying colors. So it, is it logically consistent when you apply 
the test to the Bible, yes, it is. Is, is it empirically adequate? Yes, the Christian worldview is the only actual worldview in which God actually inserts himself into our reality. And that is a historically identifiable uh, figure. Also, consider that the entire Christian worldview hangs on one thing, and that's the resurrection. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so, and really so is our faith. If Jesus said that he would spiritually rise again rather than physically, then we really couldn't empirically test this, this fundamental critical claim of the Christian faith. But he actually didn't say that. He didn't say he was going to rise spiritually. He very clearly said, I will rise physically. And so that is actually an empirically testable claim. And there is a plethora of evidence to suggest that the resurrection of Jesus did in fact historically occur. You can first consider the fact that his very public tomb was empty and, and that virtually the, the virtually unmovable stone blocking the entrance was rolled to the side to provide an opening when, even with a Roman guard that was sitting there guarding the tomb, he was there and he didn't even notice. He fell asleep. Or you can consider the fact that it was two women who discovered the empty tomb. Now, this is critically important because in the cultural context, the testimony of women was not to be, com uh, was not to be uh, considered at all. It was actually, in fact, to be completely disregarded and considered moot. So it would be embarrassing to the gospel writers to include the fact that women discovered the empty tomb in this story. They, 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 wouldn't, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't even make it up. It wouldn't make any sense for them to because of that embarrassment. So they wouldn't have reported on it unless it was absolutely true. You can also consider the more than 500 witnesses that saw Jesus walking around after he had died. Or you can consider how in the, in the, in the world uh, Christianity became so quickly widespread. It's because of the apostles going out and, and preaching the gospel and, and Christ's resurrection. The apostles would, uh, wouldn't just go out and preach this stuff if they themselves didn't believe it to be true. They absolutely had no incentive to. Most of them actually ended up being martyred and killed for, for uh, professing what they were professing about Christ. So why would they voluntarily do something that they knew would wind up getting them killed if they knew for a fact that they were preaching a lie? As the saying goes, liars make terrible martyrs. So there is an abundant uh, amount of testable evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Any other explanation for those things I mentioned make little sense compared to the resurrection as an explanation. Lastly, Christianity is experientially relevant. We can see this in the lives of believers who have been radically transformed by the grace of Jesus. Really, Anyone that claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ can attest to this. I can attest to this. My life has been unbelievably changed from when I was not a Christ follower. You also see this in violent criminals becoming loving servants, the anxious and the depressed experiencing uplifting joy, the sick experiencing comfort and peace, the oppressed experiencing liberation, knowing where they will spend eternity. There's a prison, actually, in Louisiana called Angola Prison. And it's actually, it's a very wonderful story because it was once called the bloodiest prison in America. There was actually reports that upon arrival, inmates were handed a knife and just basically just told good luck. It was an absolutely brutal place to be. But sometime a little over a decade ago, the prison hired a new warden and he really only had one condition to his employment and that was that he would run the prison in his way. And just a few years later when Prisons when prisoners entered the prison now, 
instead of being handed a knife, they're handed a Bible. And the nearly 5,000 prisoners, who pretty much all have life sentences, uh, now attend chapel daily and even take seminary courses at the prison. So instead, what the warden did, instead of, of being a prison full of a gang of violent criminals, the prison is training a gang of pastors and ministers. You simply cannot have that result outside of the transforming love of Jesus Christ. Christianity is experientially relevant. The next tool is really four questions that every worldview, every worldview must answer. The first is origin, where do I come from? The second is meaning, what is the purpose of life? The third is morality, how do I differentiate between good and evil? And the fourth is destiny, what happens to me when I die? These questions are critical and they must be answered in a way that actually adheres to correspondence and coherence theory and in a way that is logically consistent, empirically adequate, and experientially relevant. Now let's start with origin first. Genesis 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us full of grace and truth. So you can see that Christianity posits a beginning. Interestingly, the atheists, the naturalists, the scientists didn't actually originally believe that the earth had a beginning. For thousands of years, scientists accepted the notion that the earth just always was. It always existed with no beginning. Only in in the past few hundred years did the scientific community accept the fact that it had a beginning, that the earth had a beginning. And interestingly, uh, they, they were the ones that actually tried to suppress the work of Galileo before the church did because they were afraid that his work would confirm the Christian worldview of creation, not refute it. And in fact, Galileo and even Sir Isaac Newton, kind of the founder of, of modern-day physics and, and calculus, were Christians. C.S. Lewis says that men became scientific because they expected law and nature. And they expected law and nature because they believed in a divine legislature. Naturalists today, uh, such as the late Stephen Hawking, believe that the universe explains itself. Now, that actually takes probably a lot more faith than believing that, that God created the earth. But this is what Hawking says. Because there is a law like gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Now just think about that claim for a second. That that kind of sounds a little out there, right? I mean, because there's a law of gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. That that presupposes that gravity existed before the creation of the universe. So how did what created gravity then? So here's actually what um, John Lennox, professor of mathematics at Oxford University, points out. He says. Gravity is not nothing, and for X to create Y, we presuppose the existence of X. Hawking is saying that X creates X, which presupposes X to explain X. So what does that mean by nothing if, if, if he gives that gravity and other laws existed already? Lennox concludes that nonsense incidentally remains nonsense even when it is spoken by scientists. One can't simply explain the beginning of the universe, the incredibly specific fine-tuning of the universe with its fundamental constants of nature, and the creation of life itself without a theistic worldview. Even Stephen Hawking, later himself, said, our universe 
and its laws appear to have a design that both is tailor-made to support us and, if we are to exist, leaves little room for alteration. This is not easily explained and raises the natural question of why it is that way. The discovery relatively recently of the extreme fine-tuning of so many of the laws of nature could lead at least some of us back to the old idea that this grand design is the work of some grand designer. That is not the answer of modern science. Our universe seems to be one of many, each with different laws. Now, he kind of concludes and says, well, you know, I think that, you know, the, the, the universe seems to be like it was created by a divine creator, but, you know, there's a lot of universes and stuff like that because he believes in the multiverse theory, um, and they might all have different laws, so I can't conclude that there's a god. But he at least lends credibility to the argument that God possibly exists. And the truth is that the Christian, or, or at least the theistic worldview, is the only one that can fully answer the questions of origins. God is the uncaused first cause. So, and for more detail on this, I'm not an expert in science, but for more detail on this, I recommend you go and read John Lennox's book, Can Science Explain Everything? He's a triple PhD in theology, mathematics, and science, um, so he is a brilliant guy, and, and he can really break down a lot of these things really digestibly for you. The next question is the question of meaning. And only in the Christian worldview, again, does it assert that we are made imago Dei, as in, in the image of God. This means that our lives are intrinsically valuable. When God created male and female, though he proclaimed the rest of his creation to be good, he said that his creation of people was very or exceedingly good. God places great value on our lives, so we absolutely have purpose because of our intrinsic value, that we're made imago Dei. Ecclesiastes 12.13 puts the purpose of life this way. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Psalm 57 verse 2 says, I cry out to God the Most High, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. And 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So therefore, our purpose is to love God, keep his commands, and make him known to the world. Other worldviews uh, have to answer this question. Some try to, but consider the atheistic worldview. If we're simply a product of time plus matter plus chance, what purpose does that give our life? How can we have hope in a framework like that? The answer is you just can't. Only in the Christian worldview is your search for purpose and meaning fulfilled, and that is when you know deeply your creator. Now to morality. This leads us to a, a rather strong argument for the existence of God. One of the primary arguments against the existence of God is, is the existence of evil. And on the surface, that seems reasonable. I mean, how can a good God allow such suffering and evil in the world? Well, let's just kind of follow that to its logical conclusion. If you posit the existence of evil, then you must assume the existence of good. I, that, that seems reasonable, right? Okay, we, we can see that there's evil and we can see that there's good. And if you assume there exists good and evil, then you must assume that there exists a moral law on the basis of which to differentiate between good and evil. But if you assume the existence of a moral law then you must posit the existence of a moral law giver. But that is who the unbeliever is trying to disprove and not prove. But now you may be asking, well, 
if I assume a moral law, why do I have to posit a moral law giver? That's because any time the question of evil is raised, it is either raised by a person or about a person, and that simply cannot logically occur in a non-theistic universe. Why? Because when you raise the question about a person, you assume that that person has intrinsic worth, which, as I mentioned earlier, is only possible if we are made imago Dei, in the image of God. Believing that we are the creation of time plus matter plus chance, as the naturalist does, renders the existence of good and evil uh, and, and a moral law impossible. There is simply no incentive for morality because everything uh, would, be, would be relative. Morality would, ha would, would be whatever benefits each individual. Ravi Zacharias uh, says it this way. He says, The intrinsic worth that Jesus gives to us is an undeniable expression that my questions are valuable because at my core, my essence is valuable. And when I see a deviation from it, I have a legitimate reason to ask the question. He continues and says, The problem of evil is delegitimized in a naturalistic framework. That's why Richard Dawkins' comment here is fascinating. Dawkins says, I have come to the conclusion that there is no such thing as evil. We are merely dancing to our DNA. So even the renowned atheist Richard Dawkins cannot accept the existence of evil. He recognizes that he cannot both believe in the existence of evil and remain logically consistent. But of course, I think we can all objectively say that evil and injustice exists, right? And the only way that that is possible is if God exists. And that's why God's people need to be deeply concerned with evil and injustice in the world and rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to stand up against it. I think you generally see that. So the question of morality is comprehensively answered in the Christian worldview. Now to the final question of destiny. Again, Ravi Zacharias says that destiny is the keyhole through which we look at time. Or in other words, it's the keyhole through which we look into eternity. The Christian worldview asserts that uh, we have eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 6.23 says that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we immediately enter a relationship with our Creator who will carry us into eternity with him. We have citizenship in the kingdom of God because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Now, that gift is a gift of grace, and, and it's not of works that we did. There's nothing that we could have done to reconcile ourselves to the Father, and there's nothing that we could do uh, possibly to earn our way into heaven. Now, all work-based religions are, are hopeless for that reason. They leave their followers wondering when they die, did my good outweigh my bad? Uh, is God going to, you know, is he going to credit me for, for the good I've done? You know, I did this bad, I did this good. Are they going to outweigh each other? Now, that's that, that's a life uh, with, with absolutely no certainty of salvation. Where's the hope in that? Similarly, according to the atheist, we just rot in the ground when we die. We descend into nothingness. Life is just over. It's black. It's done. And again, this simply lacks hope. Now, keep in mind that these work-based and atheistic worldviews are not logically consistent in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Only the Christian worldview is. And again, only the Christian worldview can fully answer the question of destiny. Where do we go when we die? Finally, I, I want to go through, and I'll go through these rather quickly. There are five disciplines that 
must address any worldview. And the disciplines are theology, the study of God, metaphysics, the study of reality, epistemology, uh, how do I know something to be true, ethics, how, uh, how and from where do I get my reality, and then anthropology, which is the study of kind of humankind. And these disciplines all address the, the Christian worldview uniquely. As for theology, that one's pretty easy. The Bible lays out God's truth for us, and it's the primary way of which God reveals himself to us. As for metaphysics, not only is God the creator of reality itself, but he actually inserted himself into reality by becoming flesh and dwelling among us in Jesus Christ. Ravi Zacharias says that in the Christian faith, we believe Jesus is the consummate experience of God in the person of his son and is the savior and redeemer of the world. The Bible and the life of Jesus thus shape reality. As for epistemology, as in where does knowledge come from, well, the answer to that question is from the creator of knowledge itself, the source of knowledge, God. This is consistently revealed in the Bible without contradiction. In Hosea 4, 6, God says to his prophet Hosea, my people are destroyed for, the, for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you being a priest to me. God's really concerned for his people's lack of knowledge here because he is the very arbiter of knowledge, the creator of knowledge. So his people should be resolute in growing in the knowledge of God. 2 Peter 3.18 says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Similarly, Colossians 1.9 says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be fulfilled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. As for morality and ethics, we pretty much already walked through that um, when we covered the question of morality earlier, but it goes without saying that because God places such high value on our lives, he has deep concern for how we treat each other, and so should we. That's why Jesus Christ uh, says that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And your neighbor is everybody. Jesus also says in Matthew 5, uh, 43 to 44, You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You won't find a statement like that, by the way, in any other worldview. To love those who do good to you, that's easy. To love those who persecute you, that is much harder. But that's the standard that Jesus sets for us. And Jesus goes on to say uh, exactly that in verse 46 through 40, 48. He says, If you love those who love you, what reward will, that, will you get? Are not even the tax collectors or the sinners doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus is very concerned with how we treat others. So the Christian worldview is comprehensive on the ethics and the morality of how we live. And finally, the last discipline is anthropology. In other words, the study of humankind and how we came to be and develop. I covered origins earlier, but I, I also want to reiterate something that I mentioned earlier that is crucial and unique to the Christian worldview, in case you missed it. No other worldview or religion claims that their God became flesh and dwelt among us, not one other. And this is a historical and anthropologically testable fact. Even the Jewish historian 
Josephus, who had no incentive to report this except that it is actually true, agrees and writes that Jesus of of Nazareth lived, preached, and died on the cross at the hand of Pontius Pilate. Josephus wrote this around the time that the first churches were being planted by the apostles. And being Jewish and and violently against the spread of Christianity, he still reported the life and death of Jesus Christ as a historical fact. Again, no other worldview makes such an incredibly testable claim. So I've given you the tools and some defense for the Christian faith, but now it's up to you to examine your own worldview. And if you're not a Christian, uh, to actually do that and see if it passes the test presented here. If it doesn't, and you're left with questions about what you then should do and where you should turn next, I I would just really encourage you to pick up a Bible, turn to the Gospel of John, read it three times through, and ask God to reveal himself to you. And if you are sincere in your pursuit of truth, then I believe that God will answer that prayer. For the Christian, you know already what truth is. We don't find truth simply in an idea or in a doctrine but actually in a person, in Jesus Christ. Jesus calls us to go out and make disciples of all nations, impartially. We have a biblical command to share the, God, the good news with non-believers and give a reason for the hope that we have with gentleness and respect. So go forth in truth and love and introduce others to the truth and introduce others to Christ. God bless.